Hi, this is David Yaz at the Boston Podcast Network, hoping you are staying safe and healthy during this period of precaution over the coronavirus. It's difficult to connect with your clients and contacts in a period such as this, but here we continue to produce podcasts that allow you to connect with the people that you want to reach. You've got a rapt audience like never before. People are home, they're listening, and they're waiting to hear from you. We can create a professional podcast with a quick turnaround and do the whole thing remotely so you don't have to leave your home. Get in touch with us at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. On today's episode of Ask Harry, Harry chats with Kevin Urbach, National Director of the Academy of Special Needs Planners, on the subject of special needs planning. Kevin, thank you for joining me again for another podcast about special needs planning. In our first one, we talked about planning for families who have a child with a disability to make sure that they, we have a plan for them for their, for their whole lives and for what happens after their parents are no longer there to really help them manage their lives and take care of them. And today, we're going to talk about, in this session, we're going to talk about another issue which is related, um, but really talk about first-party trust in, instead of third-party trust and, and what the distinction is and um, how adults may end up uh, having first-party trust. But before we get into that, we always start with a question from the askharry.info website. And uh, um, even though it's called Ask Harry, we're asking Kevin today. <laughs> and uh, the question is, what is a trust protector and how do they work? Are there advantages and disadvantages in setting one in place? Thanks, Harry. Uh, a great question. Um, so when we're looking at special needs planning, we, in our earlier podcast, we focused mostly on third-party special needs trusts. And just to kind of go back and explain the distinction, um, third-party special needs trusts are funded with assets that do not belong to the person with a disability. So could be an inheritance from parents, grandparents, siblings, um, could be gifts. Um, sometimes you'll see the GoFundMe crowd uh, create a third-party special needs trust, and they'll send that um, into that trust. Again, it has to be directed to that trust. The other type of special needs trust, what we're talking about here is called first-party special needs trust. And the first party trust is when the beneficiary, the person with a disability, has assets. We have to put those assets into a first party trust. Now, that is really set forth and the rules are set forth in federal law. And the reason they're set forth there is because if you, if you follow those rules, then the money in that special needs trust can be used to enhance the quality of life of the person with a disability and they can remain qualified for programs like Supplemental Security Income or Medicaid. And so the benefit of having that money set aside for them is critical. One of the rules, though, of first-party and third-party trust is that the beneficiary, the person with a disability, cannot be the trustee. So they cannot manage their own money. It has to be managed by a trustee. Now, that trustee can be just about anyone else. It can be family members, friends, it can be professionals. But one of the rules is that trustee has to have sole and absolute discretion on making distributions from the trust for the beneficiary's special needs. And when we're talking sole and absolute discretion, 
that's a pretty hefty standard. So they could say, you know, the trustee, the beneficiary says, you know, I, I really need a modified van for transportation needs. And let's say the trust has more than enough money to pay for it. The trustee has a legal right to say, well, I, I, I don't think we can pay for that. So we're not going to. And there's really nothing the beneficiary can do to force the trustee to make that distribution. And that's kind of a scary proposition when, you know, a person with a disability might receive money and they put it into this first party trust and now they're giving up total control. So a way around that is something we use called the trust protector. And sometimes you'll see it referred to as a trust advisory committee. It's really the same thing. I think the main distinction I see is the advisory committee is more than one person. Um, Trust protector might just be one or two people. So it's really a creation. um, Well, I won't get into all the history of it, but how we use it in special needs planning is that the trust protector will kind of sit back on the sidelines and kind of evaluate the trustee and see if they're doing a good job. So as an attorney who creates special needs trust, you could give that trust protector, say, the right to remove and replace the trustee at any time for any reason. Um, And I think that's a good power to have because, again, if a trustee has that much control over the trust assets and, and how to make a disbursement for a beneficiary, it's a good idea to have some check and balance over that trustee. And that's what a trust protector can really provide. Now, there's a host of other authorities that you could give a trust protector. Uh, One is you could give them the right to amend an otherwise irrevocable trust if, say, the laws changed um, concerning special needs trusts and you need to update your trust and now it's irrevocable. Um, Typically, most, I think, states will allow the trustee to petition a court and go into court, make the amendment because of changed circumstances, and then you have a perfectly valid trust, you know, that might cost two to $5,000 or whatever it costs. Um, or you could have a trust protector with that right. And instead of going to court, you could just have the trust protector sign off on it. So again, really what they're doing is protecting the trust. Hence the name, I think. Uh, they may have other um, roles Typically for special needs, I focus mostly on the amendment. I let them have, you know, discretion over the trustee making the decision to remove or replace them. I I have seen trusts where they actually require the trust protector or trust advisory committee to uh, evaluate every disbursement and, and consent to it, which I think is a, too burdensome. Um, I think it's easier to let the trustee just manage the trust and just have the trust protector with the right to remove and replace them. Um, I don't want them micromanaging the trustee. Otherwise, you're increasing the cost of administration and the delays and everything. Um, Other things a trust protector might do if the beneficiary moves from one state to another, um, they may want to change under what rules the trust is being evaluated. So if you move from California to Massachusetts, I don't know why you would do that, but some people may. Um, You might end up with a different set of laws and the trust protector could then change the situs to the new trust, I'm sorry, to the new state. And then we would have the ability to manage it that way. So the next part of that question was whether or not, I'm sorry, 
The second part of that question talked about the advantages and disadvantages of using a trust protector. I think the advantages are kind of those that I already discussed, you know, the benefit to have a check and balance system over a poorly performing trustee, the ability to modify the trust to keep it current with any changes in the law, the ability to kind of change the laws if the beneficiary moves to a different state that might have, you know, more easier laws to follow or stricter laws that they have to obey. So again, the trust protector advantages are, are pretty significant. There are some disadvantages, and I kind of alluded to some of those as well. For example, if you give the trustee too much authority, they may slow up the administration and they may have uh, incredible costs associated with managing the trust. So if the trustee is a professional and we have the trustee having to you know, respond to a trust protector who's contacting them on every single disbursement, we're really looking at a trust administration is going to be super expensive. And so we may want to avoid that, um, you know, with with how we draft for the trust protector. We may want to limit their role somewhat. The other thing that has happened in the past is sometimes that trust protector is not a good person. <laughs> and sometimes what they will do is they become hostile to either the trustee or the beneficiary, and they can, again, cause a lot of harm because you're giving them some authority to do things that normally, you know, there would be no one having the right to do that except for after a court petition. So if you have a trust protector who's not doing a good job, they can really cause a lot of problems, um, and they're usually expensive to fix. So if you're going to have a trust protector or an advisory committee, which I strongly recommend that every special needs trust have um, due to the sole and absolute discretion authority the trustee has, that you carefully consider who would serve in that role. Now, the other question that usually comes after that is, well, who should I have serve in that role? Would that be something that you as an attorney would agree to do? Um, now, I know there are some attorneys who will do it. I'm not one of those attorneys, uh, mostly because there is a huge amount of liability for someone like me having to sit on as a trust protector or member of a trust advisory committee. So in order for me to offset that huge amount of liability, I would have to charge a big fee. And I would prefer not to do that. I'd prefer just to be the attorney and I can advise the trust, but I don't want to be kind of the actual trust protector. So what I prefer to do is to find family members who have the beneficiary's best interest at heart, um, who can kind of review financial records, make phone calls, talk to the talks to the beneficiary regularly. And it doesn't have to all be one person. You could have multiple people and maybe they each are really good at one of those things. And that they can then serve together on the advisory committee. They can also appoint their own successor. Because the other thing to remember about special needs planning is that these trusts can last for decades. So oftentimes the people that we started with who were serving very well on an advisory committee, if we don't have a system in place for replacing them, then we're going to have a lot of difficulty over the years, you know, having to go to court and keep filling up that committee. So what I'd like to do with families, um, if they have a deep bench, is we can name a certain number of people to serve. And then we set up backups already there. But more importantly, 
we set it up so that the people who are serving on the committee can always appoint their own successor or appoint additional members if they need it. So again, I think it's critical when you're using a trust protector or an advisory committee that you carefully think through what powers you give them. You carefully consider how they're going to be replaced. You have a discussion with the family about the importance of naming a trust protector or committee that will really be working for the benefit of the beneficiary. Um, again, we wanna avoid if we can, costly administration. Um, so we wanna make sure that that person is handling this in a professional way. So I think those are primarily some of the advantages and disadvantages of using a trust protector or trust advisory. We talked about a little bit in our first podcast, third party special needs planning. Um, in this podcast, we really wanted to focus on first party planning. And really where this comes from is when a person with a disability receives money, and sometimes that can be from a litigation recovery. Oftentimes people with disabilities become disabled because of medical malpractice, automobile accidents. And part of that is they receive a settlement. And because of their disability, they will likely not be able to work at a job for the rest of their lives. Or even if they can work, it's only in a very limited role. And so they do need to, again, use public benefits to try to supplement whatever money they have, even from a settlement or you know, a judgment that they get after a lawsuit. And so that's where first party planning, I think that's primarily the biggest part of special needs, first party special needs planning. So Kevin, you talked about uh, people who have disabilities receiving money in personal injury lawsuits, whether um, something that happened, just happened to them or happened that caused the, dis the disability in the first place. But what other sources of funds are there that people with disabilities might receive? Yeah, that's a good question because I think a lot of times people focus mostly on the litigation recoveries. But it's also important to remember that if an inheritance is left to a person with a disability and they do not leave it to a third party special needs trust and they leave it instead in the name of the person with a disability, that is first party money, meaning that we have to use a first party special needs trust to protect it in the future. So yeah, in addition to the litigation recoveries, we have these unexpected inheritances or unplanned for inheritances that the person can receive. Um, other ways that people with disabilities can have money is sometimes there's gifts that they receive and it could be uh, gifts from grandparents who uh, have you know, are doing it out of the goodness of their heart, not realizing that it's going to have a lot of adverse consequences for, say, public benefits and, and other things. So it's important that we look at all the money the person with a disability has. You know, another common, somewhat common planning is, especially with, around schizophrenia, for some reason seems to hit around age 29 or 30. And oftentimes these are very highly functioning people who were, you know, did very well in their early life in their jobs. A lot of CEOs, CFOs, <laughs> wow. and they have significant funds in their name, but then they've had like this psychotic break and now they need protection, but they still have money. Sometimes it's retirement plans and, and all kinds of things. So, you know, just because somebody becomes disabled later, um, doesn't mean that they weren't working before. And if they haven't paid enough into the system, to receive a different kind of public benefit like social security disability 
um, and with access to Medicare, again, we may have to do some planning for the SSI, Supplemental Security Income, or, or Medicaid. So, you know, I think those are the big sources of unexpected revenue litigation, uh, recoveries. It could be uh, an unexpected or unplanned for inheritance. It could be a gift. It could also be just money that they earn themselves, but now they need to do some planning. Um, maybe they won the lottery. I don't know. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. Um, so the um, so you talked earlier about the fact that these first party trusts um, have to be very carefully drawn to meet um, the statutory requirements, and um, and there is a distinction between what's known as D4A trusts and D4C trusts. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. And we call them that because of the federal statute that created these types of trusts, which was actually passed in 1993. So as far as legal terms go, that's not that long ago. But D4A is really like an individual special needs trust. It's one that the person with a disability as of 2016 can now set up themselves if they have capacity to do so. Otherwise, it's a parent, grandparent, legal guardian, or the court. And they set up this D4A special needs trust. They can uh, have a trustee appointed, and the only beneficiary of that trust is them. Um, now, the rule for the D4A trust primarily is that the trustee can only make disbursements for the primary or sole benefit of the beneficiary, which sounds reasonable, except when you start thinking about, you know, well, they can't use it for birthday gifts to siblings or loved ones, or they can't take somebody with them on a trip just because they can't afford it, stuff like that, which, you know, I guess may or may not be a big deal. Um, the other big rule with a D4A trust is that, you know, as long as the person is alive, that money in that trust is there for their to enhance their quality of life. But on their death, they have to pay for all Medicaid they receive throughout their life um, and pay back the state Medicaid agencies. And then if there's money left, it can go to heirs. So that we call that the payback provision sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And so those are kind of the, and then the other issue with the D4A trust is it can only be set up for someone under age 65. So it has to be under age 65. They have to be disabled. It has to be for their sole or primary benefit. And there has to be a payback provision um, to the state Medicaid agency. Now the D4C trust, or sometimes we refer to it as the pooled special needs trust, is a trust that's already in existence. It's run by a not-for-profit. And if you want to join that trust, you usually sign something called a joinder agreement. And the trust itself is a master trust document. And so if, say, you get a $100,000 in a life insurance policy that was left to you outright, you're on SSI and Medicaid, you would take that 100000 you could join a pooled special needs trust, transfer it to the pooled, they would create a set-aside account for you. And that set-aside account then could be used for your special needs for the rest of your life. And they still have that primary benefit, sole benefit rule, so they can only use it for you. And then on your death, it's a little different that the charity can retain up to 100% of the money left after the person dies. Um, most pool trust programs will only, they may retain zero or they may retain 50. They, you know, they have different percentages. 
And then everything after that then has to be used to pay back the state Medicaid office. And then anything, if there's anything left after that, it can go to heirs. Um, and so it's kind of a neat way if, especially for people who don't have like the deep bench, they don't have a lot of people they could name as trustees or advisory committee members or trust protectors. And it's a quick way um, to get money into a protected entity. The trusts again, operate just like a D4A other than you don't have one trustee you're talking to. Um, sometimes it might be a committee. It might take a little longer because the pooled trust program might be managing 300 accounts. Um, so again, it's, it's a nice alternative. Um, usually I describe it to my clients, you know, here you have the D4A option or the D4C option. Um, here's the benefits and usually let them make the decision on how they're used. Um, again, we could have a whole podcast on just that distinction itself. Definitely. So, um, and so any other questions, uh, so I'll have to cut some of this. What, what, what do you think, Kevin? What else should we yeah, discuss? I, I, I think it's good. I, you know, we, I covered quite a bit, um, especially with the advice, the pr- trust protector. So Kevin, this is, this is great. Uh, I think it'll give people a good understanding of how they can protect funds that they either already have or they re- receive um, if they have a disability or, or, or become disabled and need both professional management and the ability to qualify or, or maintain their eligibility for public benefits. But it's complicated stuff. And I'm wondering where people should go if they either want more information or need to find some assistance um, in advising them on how to proceed or to set up one of these trusts you've discussed. Yeah, and, and thank you for for having me on your podcast, Harry. I do appreciate it. Um, this is complicated stuff, and, and a lot of times when I'm working with family members, they come in and they really don't understand some of the basics. And so it's important that you get proper guidance when you're doing this planning because it's very easy to be led astray and I've had to correct many people's internet, uh, you know, when they're going in and investigating this planning by using internet, there's a lot of false information that's floating out about this type of planning. So I strongly recommend that they go to the Academy of Special Needs Planners uh, website at specialneedsanswers.com. There's a lot of information. There's question and answers there for some of the most commonly asked questions. Um, There's also a list of professionals all around the country who can assist with this type of planning, um, both financially and legally. So there's a lot of attorneys and financial advisors who specialize just in this type of planning. So I think it's critical that when you're going to do a plan for a loved one with special needs that you find the right people to assist. And just for a quick bit of self-promotion, I guess, patting myself on the back, there is a book out there from NOLO Press. Um, It's planning for your child's financial future using special needs trusts. Uh, It's a do-it-yourself book, but you know, I, I strongly recommend that most people use a professional because even with a book's guidance, you're going to miss some of the nuances. But if you want to get prepped for meeting with a professional, I would strongly recommend taking a look at that book as far as you know, understanding some of the terminology, some of the things that you want to see in the trust. And the other thing is it's a good way for you to evaluate the professional and make sure that they are really 
they really understand this area of law. So that's where I would probably send people. Very good. Thank you very much, Kevin. I, I definitely agree that clients who understand uh, what we're talking about working with us uh, together, we can produce really the best, the best results for them and their families. So this was terrific, Kevin. Thank you very much. Thank you, Harry, again. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes. 